so back in the day when I was a football player, one of the things they would do is they would install now the playbook. And so you would come to a meeting and they would give you a little piece of it. Then you'd come to another meeting and they'd build on that. You'd come to a meeting, you'd build on that. And as you went through rookie camp, you, you came out with the playbook. So now you, you had the whole thing. And now your job was to go execute. And in many ways, what I've tried to do in our times together is just kind of lay out a little bit of the playbook. So Friday night, we talked about the uh, shared inheritance of indwelling sin. You, you can't talk about good news unless you understand bad news. And so we talked about us being sinners by nature and sinners by deed. And Ephesians 2.12 says that we have no hope without God in the world. We talked a little bit uh, yesterday morning about the difference of doing life in the flesh and life in the spirit. There's two ways to deal with that indwelling sin. You could try to manage it on your own, uh, which really doesn't deal with it. It doesn't eradicate it. It just sort of tries to manage it. It attempts to manage it, but as you've experienced, I'm sure as well, your flesh is not a very good um, manager of sin, right? Sin always wins, okay? Uh, there's also, though, being in the spirit. In the flesh, we said in that management of sin, it comes out primarily in two ways, either impulsivity, that's the indulgent person, the person who without thought of God just goes for it, all right, and lives crazy. The other is the compulsive person, the person who lives um, sort of how the good person should live. By the way, um, one of the guys mentioned the issue of should. Nobody likes to be should on. So be careful when you're talking about should. Oh, you should do this or you should do that. That's shame and guilt. That's not the gospel. And so to live compulsively is to live in the flesh trying to manage that. And thankfully, Jesus, as you've heard, invites us into another way, the easy yoke of Christ, um, which is based on him and his burden being easy and being light, fruit of which is the gospel. Thankfully, in the gospel, when you trust in Jesus Christ, you are sealed with the Spirit of God. And it's the Spirit of God that really becomes the, the energizer, the engine, the drive, the unction of living the Christian life. And so through Jesus, we now live life in the Spirit. And the beauty of being in the Spirit if, if, is if anyone is in Christ, we're new creatures, old things pass away, new things have come, the mastery of sin is now broken, not the influence the mastery, the influence will always be there until we die. All you have to do to get rid of the influence of sin in your life as a believer is die. That's it. But until that day, we're, we're going to continue to wrestle with it. But the beauty is in Christ, in the spirit, we are fully forgiven, fully accepted, fully known, fully loved. It's the beauty of the gospel. And yet a believer has a choice even in the spirit to walk by the flesh or walk by the spirit. To walk by the flesh is to go back into sin management as a believer, which is foolishness because you have the spirit of God in you, and yet you're going to now be perfected in the flesh, and we do it all the time. Moralism is not just a non-believer thing, it's a believer thing because you trust Jesus, and you're still motivated by shame and guilt to be better. It is not in your power to be better. It is the power of the spirit of God that gives you the motivation and changes you to be who God wants you to be. It's not flesh. So we can walk in the flesh or walk in the spirit. Now, thankfully, there is a better way than living in the spirit and walking in the flesh. We could live by the spirit and walk by the spirit. Listen to Galatians 5, 24 and 25. It says, now those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also walk by the spirit. So there, there is another way to live the Christian life, to be living in the spirit and walking by 
the Spirit, the question that now we want to ask and answer is, how do you do that? Because that sounds different maybe than what you've heard, maybe different than what you've experienced. And so I, I want to talk about that a little bit. If you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians 9. I am, by the way, going to give you a couple of lists that there's no way this side of heaven you're going to remember. So if you want to grab something to write on or pull out your phone and, and hammer out a note, it might be worth your time, totally up to you. But uh, 1 Corinthians 9. So the city of Corinth was a fascinating city. Uh, it's on an isthmus, really, in between Sparta and Greece. This tiny little inlet, two ports, very influential city, probably the most corrupt and affluent and influential city, really, in, in, other than Rome and all of your New Testament. Uh, and yet they had, every two years, what was called the Isthmian Games. And in these games, um, athletes would come from all over the world, second only to the Olympics. They would come from all over the world and stay in Corinth, which was a relatively small city in comparison to others, at least by way of land mass. Which is why, by the way, Paul's tent-making business with Priscilla and Aquila in Corinth was so lucrative. Because every two years, you've got people coming and needing a place to stay. And if you made tents and sold tents, you're selling campers that people could hang out in out in the fields. And yet, in 1 Corinthians 9, the Isthmian Games really defined the culture a little bit every two years, right? You're, you're just marked by that. So 1 Corinthians 9, 24, I wanted you to understand a little context behind this passage that you may be familiar with. He says, do you not know that in a race, all runners run, but only one gets the prize? So run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in these games goes into strict training they do it to get a crown that will not last. The victors, by the way, got that laurel crown on their head. They do, get it, they, uh, do it to get a crown that will not last. Uh, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly, which would be foolishness. Why would you start a race if you had no idea where the finish line was? Uh, I do not fight like a uh, boxer beating the air. Like, why would I like, knock you out by doing this? He says, no, instead, verse 27, I, I discipline myself or strike a blow to my body that I might make it my slave. So after I've preached to you, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Worth noting that obviously as soon as Paul said, do you not know that in a race all runners run, everybody in Corinth was like, got it. Because they understood the context. They knew where the finish line was. They knew where the starting line was. They knew the track. Every two years, every athlete in the world came there to compete. And he says, so run in such a way that you might win the prize. Everyone, verse 25, who competes in the games exercises my Bible translation. And this is the NIV because I like the way the NIV says this. Everybody who competes in the games exercises strict training. This idea of disciplining yourselves. If you've ever seen like a real athlete, you go, you're different. I don't look like that, train like that, live like that. You, you are next level. And then in verse 27, he says, I discipline my body or strike a blow to my body. So after I have preached to others, I will not be disqualified. Both of those terms have the idea of human effort involved in doing something to help you perform at a high level. Now, I want to make a distinction, though, as we're talking about spiritual training. What does it mean for us to train spiritually? And, and thanks to a guy named John Ortberg who wrote a book called The Life You've Always Wanted. I want to make a distinction based on what he talked about Training versus trying, okay? What we're talking about here in terms of spiritual training is not trying. That's different. Uh, trying uh, is not actually very effective at all. So if I said to you, hey, come on, guys, we're going to go run the lake twice. 
Okay, so let's go. But here's the thing. I want you to try really hard. Look, I, I don't care how much trying you can muster. Either you are able physically to run the lake twice or you're not. And the reality is all the amount of trying in the world, even deeply committed trying, is not going to help you get any farther. But if I said to you, hey, guys, uh, in a year from now, we're going to run the lake twice. And so what we're going to do between now and then is we're going to train. And so we're going to begin to eat different. Uh, we're going to begin to uh, work out a little bit. We're going to begin to get our steps in a little bit. We're going to work on our cardiovascular ability because we're at elevation. So we're, we're going to train uh, to run that thing in a year. Do you think in a year, if you trained, you'd be more likely to run the lake twice? I'm not saying that you would run the lake twice, okay? Some of us are Clydesdales. We don't want to do that. But, but you understand my point. We tend to overestimate what we can do with trying and underestimate what we can do with training. And so spiritual training is not trying, it's different. What, what is training? Well, Dallas Willard put it this way. Spiritual training is to engage my life around those practices that enable me to do that which I cannot now do on willpower alone. I'm going to read it again because that's gold. To engage my life around those practices then enable me to do that which I cannot now do on willpower or flesh alone. So let's talk about discipline or training. If I say discipline or training, for most guys, we're like, oh, great. It's another diet. It's another, like, P90X workout plan. It's another, you know, that sounds awful. Like, discipline and training sounds very unpleasant, sounds painful, and uh, Ortberg makes the comment, and I, I'm, I'm stealing his stuff, so I'm trying to give credit where credit's due. Um, he just says, yeah, it depends on what you're training for. That's exactly right. Like, if we're training to run a marathon, I don't care what the training looks like. That's awful. Okay, I do not think God designed our bodies to run a marathon. In fact, the first guy who ever ran a marathon died after he ran it. So let, let me just acknowledge that. But what if we were, what, what if instead of training for a, a marathon or disciplining ourselves to run a marathon, what if we were training or disciplining ourselves to cook the best barbecue? Now that's a different motivator. I'm interested a little bit more in that one. And if we ask the question then, what is the ultimate goal of spiritual training or spiritual discipline? It is that we might come into a deep and abiding relationship with a manifest Christ, that we would learn as men of God to enjoy his presence to delight in the easy yoke of Jesus, to experience life in the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, that we might delight in God, delight in Him, find joy in Him. Can we all acknowledge that that's better than eating good barbecue? Which means it's worth even more to train spiritually because the end result is desirable. The end result is actually pleasurable. The end result is is beneficial to us. It's worthy of our investment, which is why in 1 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, have nothing to do with worldly fables that are fit only for old women. Instead, discipline yourself, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for both this present life and also the life to come. Do you see it? Discipline yourself, train yourself for the purpose of godliness because the return on the investment, the ROI, is not just for here but for glory, which means it's worth the investment of your time. And, and here's the thing, especially in a men's context, as you go, so goes your family. 
As you go, so goes your neighborhood. As you go, so goes your community. If you can change a man, you can change the world. Why? Because of the ripple effect. Because, fellas, you are going to influence your wives, if that's your context. You're going to influence your kids, if that's your context. You're going to influence your neighbors, your workplace, your city. If your heart can become open to God and God begins to do a work in your life, everybody's going to go, dude, what is that? And you're putting the gospel on display. But it won't come without training. And that's where most guys are out. Most guys came to fishermen's, they trusted Christ, and then they went back home. But there's no sense of training. There's no sense of purposeness or uh, purposefulness to it. There's no sense of engagement. They're, they're running a race without knowing where the finish line is. They're just kind of like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do. And so they end up doing nothing because there's no return on that. So is there a way that we can lean into a process, a spiritual training and di a disciplined process that helps grow us spiritually? And the answer is absolutely. Let me give you a little bit of a list. One. You need to know spiritual training is indeed a process. I share that because some guys are box checkers. Do you have any box checkers in here? Like you just want to check a box, that's done, put it away. What's next? That's done, put it away. This will never be done. It's frustrating, uh, but that's the point. And I'll explain why in a moment. It, it's, a, it's a process. There's no easy fix. There's no switch. There's no formula. There's no incantation. Uh, you are going to learn in spiritual training how to walk out this messy process of life with God. And I just want you to prepare. You're going to take one step forward and two steps back. Praise God. And then you're going to take one step back and three steps forward. Praise God. And you're going to lock arms with other brothers that are on the journey with you. And you're going to be doing well for a couple days and then have a little temporary setback for a couple days. But, hey, temporary setback. Get back on the horse. Let's go. And walk out this messy process of life with God. No shame no guilt. Why? You're already fully forgiven, fully accepted, fully loved, fully known. So you're not performing. Okay, so it's a process. Second, spiritual training is an already not yet endeavor. What do I mean by that? Well, there's a theological term called sanctification. Big 50 cent word that simply means to set apart as holy. We know about salvation, to be saved. You hear people talk about it. Oh, I got saved. So-and-so got saved. Saved from what? Well, saved from the, pen, uh, the uh, penalty of sin and a life separated from God, a life in the flesh and eternity in hell. That, that's what we're saved from. But we're also saved from something for something. We're, we're saved for sanctification. To sanctify is to set apart to be holy. Here's the problem with sanctification. It's already not yet. So already not yet means this. We are positionally sanctified. Already in Christ. So Romans 5.1 says that uh, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Uh, therefore there is no condemnation, Romans 8.1, for those who are in Christ. Romans 8 continues to tell us that he's convinced in either death, life, angels, principalities, present, things uh, to come, powers, whatever, blah, 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 blah. We'll be able to separate us from the love of Christ. Positionally, you are secure in glory, already considered sanctified by God. Positionally. Right? So you are declared holy by God because of Jesus. There is a perfect sanctification that will come one day. And again, all you got to do is die. And when you die, you lay aside the perishable, you put on the imperishable, and we're in the presence of God, no more sin. The problem is we're living in the awkward middle. It's called progressive sanctification. This idea that even though I'm positionally right before God and I one day will, sin will be completely removed, right now I'm told to lay aside my old self, put on the new self, Right now I'm told 
to put aside anger and wrath and malice and slander. And gosh, that's easier said than done. I'm told in Romans 6 that I'm free from the mastery of sin, but the thing in Romans 7 that I want to do, I don't do. The thing that I don't want to do, I do. I find it true that it's not me who does it, but sin which dwells in me. I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in the flesh. The willing is present, but the doing of the good is not. I'm in this awkward middle, but I know there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Welcome to progressive sanctification. It's an already not yet process. What do I mean by that? It just means, guys, it's never going to be something that's fully completed. It's something we're going to have to work on for the rest of our lives. Three, spiritual training begins now, and this is critical, with a proper understanding of the gospel. If you don't have a proper understanding of the gospel, all I'm doing by telling you about spiritual training and discipline is putting you back in the flesh saying, work it out. You work it out. That's sin management. It's got to start with a proper understanding of the gospel, that you have trusted in Jesus Christ, therefore you are already declared to be righteous, fully known, fully forgiven, fully accepted, fully loved. The spirit of God is in you, so what you're doing in terms of spiritual disciplines or practices don't make you more righteous before God. Jesus is your righteousness. They don't earn you the favor of God. You already have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So you're not like, you're not like trying to perform to get dad's approval. You hear me with that. I mean, some of you as young men spent your lives, maybe even as grown men, still trying to get dad's approval. God loves you. If you are in Christ, you are already loved, already accepted. So it's got to start with a proper understanding of the gospel. And then spiritual training ends with continued need for the gospel. What do I mean by that? Well, guys, you're, you're going to have days where you wake up and you're going to do something really stupid. Right? Even as a believer. And you're going to go, doggone it. I went to Fisherman's. I heard about the gospel. I, I know better. Why did I do that? Well, because you still need Jesus. That, that thorn in your flesh to keep you from exalting yourself is the continual presence of the knucklehead you used to be. A guy, I mentioned the traffic thing. Guy cuts me off in traffic and I'm yelling at a guy. I'm like, what are you doing, Pastor. But that's the process. That, that's what God is doing. It's going to bring you back to the gospel. And that's kind of the point. See, we, we, we unfortunately have created this view of spiritual training that says, oh, if you do these things, you'll become perfect and holy and never sin. And so guys are like, well, that's not reality in my life. So you know what we learn to do? We learn to fake it. So try hard to do good, fail. Try hard to do good, fail. It does not take long before we as men are like, look, my effort does not give me the return that I'm wanting. And yet that's the expectation I think, of the people around me. And so I'm just going to fake it. And so we just smile, yell at the wife in the car, smile when you get into the parking lot. Amen. God is good all the time and all the time. Amen, amen. It's so good to be in the house of the Lord with you. Meanwhile, you just looked at porn. And you're going to live in this duplicit life, frustrated and struggling. And it's in those moments, fellas, I just want you to laugh and go, yes, that's why I need the gospel. That's why I still need Jesus. I still today... See, you embrace the gospel at a point in time and you embrace the gospel over time. I still need Christ in my life. He has not made me perfect yet. And so it will bring you back to a continued need for the gospel. Fifth, spiritual training is initiated by and sustained by the Holy Spirit. Don't miss that. I've already said it, but if you, if you try to do spiritual training and discipline without the initiative and sustaining of the Holy Spirit, you're in the flesh. That's moralism. 
That's never going to give you, it's never going to accomplish what you think it will. You've got to initiate the process by the Holy Spirit. And the good news is he is involved, I promise you. And it's sustained by the Holy Spirit. Let me give you a couple of passages to think about. So Romans 8.29 says that those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. I don't want to get into predestination. People freak out. But there is a sense that God has purposely predestined that in your life you will become more and more like Jesus over time. Philippians put it this way in Philippians 1.6. He says, I am confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it. Which means the spirit of God is heavily involved in your sanctification process. Spiritual training and spiritual discipline is not you over here going, come on, we got this. Let's go self, let's go will, let's go commitment, and I'm going to do this. It's rather you saying, God, you're at work in my life. So search me, oh God, know my heart. Try me, know my anxious thoughts. God, what do you want to do in my life? What do you want for me? For me, not from me. This is not shame and guilt. God, what do you want for me? What's the invitation that you have? And don't, do not be surprised if your heart does not begin to stir by the movement of the Holy Spirit to get involved with these spiritual training and discipline processes that make you more like Jesus. There's a passage in Philippians 2 that's bothered me for years because you've got to read both parts. The first part says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Does that sound like spirit or flesh? Sounds like flesh. And yet if you keep reading the other half of the, the passage, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work in your life to will and to work for his good pleasure. Which brings me to the sixth thing. Spiritual training does require your participation. So you can't lean on a proverbial shovel praying for a hole and expect something to happen. It's not the way it works. There is no presto change God, I have lustful thoughts, so take them away. I'm, I'm, of course, not going to do anything different. I'm going to still listen to the nonsense music I listen to. I'm going to still watch the TV shows I've been looking at. I'm still going to dabble over here in inappropriate contact, content. But God, take the thoughts away from me. That's, that's not the way this works. God, God is not a genie that would take those things away from you. Why? Because if he did, you wouldn't need God. But you have to participate with him. Listen to Colossians 3. For uh, if you have been raised with Christ... Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated above at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of this earth. That is a first-class condition. It's translated in your Bible, if, but it also could be since, and that's probably better. So what it means really is since you've been raised with Christ, and therefore you're, you have life in the Spirit, keep seeking the things above. Keep participating in the things above, not on the things on earth. Seventh and final, uh, spiritual training uh, is learning to walk by the Spirit. It's learning to walk by the Spirit. Now, I don't know what your faith tradition is like. I, I grew up uh, in a Baptist church for like two days and then ended up at a Bible church in Texas. And, and a Bible church, I went to Dallas Theological Seminary where the, uh, the Holy Trinity was God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Scriptures. Not God the Holy Spirit because you might be branded a charismatic in, in I was a bit charisphobic, and so it's God the Holy Scriptures. Here's the problem with that. That means that there's no energy of the Spirit of God driving anything. And so one of the things we have to recognize without getting crazy, all right, without people falling over and barking, all right, we got to recognize the Bible teaches a triune view of God, of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and it's the Holy Spirit who's at work in our life.
John 7, Jesus says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the spirit uh, whom those who believed in him were to receive. There is a reservoir, a river of living water that God by his grace will grow in us as we become more attuned to his presence in our life. God working in our life to, be, to help shape us to be something we're not currently by his grace, for his glory, and for our good. So let's dig into a little bit of uh, some of these disciplines. What, what does it actually look like? I want you to think of it this way. If, if you went to the gym today and said, okay, you're going to go to the gym. You can work upper body, you can work lower body. Okay, I'm going to work lower body. Okay, we're going to do legs. Okay, there's a lot of things you could do. You could, you could do squats. You could do front squats, you could do pistol squats, you could do overhead squats, you could do lunges, you could do reverse lunges, you could do split leg lunges, you could do sumo squats, you could do power cleans, you could do leg extensions, leg curls. Point is there's a lot of things you could do to work that, that muscle group. And by working that muscle group, that group would suffer and then grow. You'd break it down and then it would recover. The spiritual life is very, very similar. There are three authors that have written pretty prolifically on this. I would encourage you to check them out. Um, the classic is Richard Foster, wrote a book 100 years ago called Celebration of Discipline. Really, really good. The second is Dallas Willard, who I've quoted already. He wrote a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines that is a worthy read. He's really smart, so he hurts my head a little bit, but uh, it's still a worthy endeavor. The other is John Ortberg, who kind of simplified or, or, with respect, dumbed down Dallas Willard's stuff to make it a little bit more palatable, a lot easier to read. He wrote a book called The Life You've Always Wanted. But what they acknowledge is that there are different kinds of disciplines, and they break them into two categories. Here's the list I told you I'd, I'd be dumping to you. One is called Disciplines of Engagement. These are spiritual disciplines that help strengthen what they call the, um, the do muscle. The do muscle. So have you ever seen the guy in the gym, by the way, he's got huge arms and itty-bitty legs. And you're like, oh, bro, you need to hit the squat rack, man. It looks kind of awkward, okay. Uh, we in our spiritual life, some of us have issues where we don't do what God invites us into. And so we need to strengthen our ability to do. Some of us, um, we indulge and we need to strengthen the not do muscle. And you need to discern in your own spiritual life what, which do you have little bitty legs or little bitty arms? And then you got to decide which things you need to work on. Here, here's the disciplines of engagement that strengthen the do muscle. One, Bible intake. Bible intake. Two, journaling. Three, prayer. Four, community. You might call it friendships. Five, service. Six, confession and repentance. Lost art, by the way, unless you grew up Catholic. Seven, celebration. Okay, so these are disciplines of engagement that strengthen your do muscle. If you in your spiritual life find yourself a wee bit passive, letting your spiritual life just kind of happen, following your wife, you know, letting her be the spiritual leader. I don't mean that to disrespect you. I just mean it's a reality. If that's the case, you need to strengthen your do muscle. Those are some things you can do. Bible intake, journaling, prayer, community, service, confession, repentance, celebration. Now I want you to write those down if you're a note-taking person uh, and just think about, and we're going to talk about it at the end, how do you implement these things into your spiritual life to help grow that area of your life, all right? The other are called disciplines of abstinence. These obviously strengthen your not-do muscle. So if you're one who indulges 
one who has a habit that you keep going back to and you're like, dang it, why do I keep hitting that thing again? Uh, these might help you. They are, seven of them, solitude, silence, fasting, simplicity, basically the discipline of saying, no, you don't need to buy that on Amazon, uh, Sabbath, secrecy, and submission. Okay, These strengthen your not-do muscle. Now, the disciplines of engagement, the first seven, are relatively self-explanatory. I mean, we understand Bible intake. We understand journaling and prayer and community service, confession, repentance, celebration. We, we kind of get those. The disciplines of abstinence are a little unique for us because we don't live in this world unless you came from a Catholic background where you practice Ignatian prayer or, or some other like form of, of uh, the, some of the practices of the Desert Fathers. The issue of solitude, very seldom do we do solitude. Just be alone for the purpose of being alone with God. Not, not to be alone just to go fishing, but can you go fishing alone with God? Okay, um, silence. I don't know about you, I've, I've got a, a watch that notifies me, a phone that notifies me, a wife that notifies me, a kid that notifies me, a staff that notifies me. I've got Slack and I've got email and I've got like all of these notifications. Very seldom am I completely unplugged. It's one of the beauties of being up here is you can actually enjoy some time of silence. No music, no distraction. Like, think about this. Why is it that when we get in our cars or trucks or whatever you drive, very common we turn on some music? Are we just afraid to be quiet? Why was that awkward? Silence. We don't like silence. We like noise. Noise distracts. Because when you're silent, you start to hear your soul. And some of you are like, I don't know what the heck that is. And yet that might be God in your soul, beginning to stir. Uh, fasting. This is a terrible retreat to talk about fasting, by the way, because I've had a meat sweat since like yesterday morning. <laughs> but what does fasting teach you to do? It teaches you to say no to what you want. Is that helpful when I go into the gym and I see that lady in spandex? That's very good for me to already have the not do muscle strengthened enough to go, no, no, I'm not looking at that. I've practiced my, I've beat my body and made it my slave, so I'm not going to indulge the flesh, all right? Simplicity, self-explanatory, saying no. Sabbath is a lost art, by the way. Just taking a day of the week and saying, man, I'm, I'm not going to do nothing but enjoy God, enjoy his creation, enjoy my family. Secrecy and submission, I'll let you play with those later. Let me introduce something quickly. It's called... Um, developmental spirituality. This will be important for you because there's, there's kind of a bell curve in the spiritual life that you need to be prepared for. There's consolation to begin with. You trust Christ. Life is awesome. You pray. It's like, yes, I sense his pleasure. You read the Bible. You're like, yes, God is so good. You worship God. You're like, woo. And then over time, you plateau. And it's, it's kind of awesome sometimes. And it's kind of good sometimes. But it's not as awesome as it was. And you're like, okay. I mean, maybe I need to go to another church. Right? Maybe, maybe, I need to, maybe I need to find another Bible study. Maybe I need to find another wife. Right? And then it, and then it begins to go down here. And the downhill is called desolation. And we do not know how to handle desolation. Desolation is where the things that once brought you joy in the spiritual life, like reading your Bible, now not only don't bring you joy, they're boring. And if, if not boring, even more than that, they bring you dread. Because you used to spend time in your Bible and it was alive and yes and underlined stuff and this is awesome. Now you're reading your Bible and you're like, ah, 
I don't even want to. And can we, can we be honest with God in desolation? And I'm going to promise you something, fellas. Your spiritual life is going to go like that. How many of you have been married for longer than 20 years? Okay. Could you gentlemen talk to me about marital consolation? Joy, naked Tuesday, life is awesome. And then plateau, raising kids, changing diapers. And then sometimes desolation. Sometimes you fight a little bit. Sometimes you're sideways a little bit. Sometimes you feel like a butler and a maid. Right? That's reality. And yet, those who've been married for 20 years or more, can, can you acknowledge the fact that some of the most intimate moments you've had with your wife are times you just sat there in silence and said nothing? Because nothing needed to be said. See, there's a beauty in desolation where you don't need the consolation. If, if your marriage was all about the consolation, you'd have to get an upgrade about every seven years, which a lot of guys do. Because as soon as you hit plateau and then desolation, you don't know how to handle that and you want the consolation, so you, you just bounce and you upgrade. And, and my concern, fellas, is that I don't think that's what God has for us. And so what, what do we do when we experience times of consolation? By the way, um, the Bible's all about consol- or, uh, desolation, by the way, the downslope. Listen to this. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For my deliverance, um, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry day by day, but you do not answer. And by night, and I have no rest. Listen to this, Psalm 42. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me for I used to go all along with the throngs to lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving and the multitude keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? That's desolation. And and the Psalms, by the way, capture that. My my point is just, fellas, if you anticipate the seasons of the spiritual life, and it's not all desolation all the time. It's not like linear, like, hey, it's awesome, and then, hey, hang in there, fellas, it's going to suck like a tractor pull until we die in desolation. That's not the case. But I want you to know what's coming. What do you do when you're in desolation? Two things. One is you might need to change it up a bit. So that guy who's always curling, he might need to do some squats. So you might be practicing in your life some disciplines of engagement, but it might be, you know what, I need to try some some disciplines of abstinence. I need to change it up a little bit. And it may be that God, by his grace, brings some consolation back into your life as you just mix it up. By the way, uh, CrossFit is a phenomenal way to get fit. It's also a good way to blow a shoulder. That's another story for another day. It's a great way to get fit because you're doing different things, different modalities. Think of the spiritual life like that. Little bit of abs- um, little bit of solitude, a little bit of fasting, a little bit of Bible intake, a little bit of celebration, a little bit of everything. Yes, enjoy it, enjoy it. Because you're going to experience God differently in each of those, right? So it might be that you need to change it up. It also might be that God has you in desolation and he wants you to stay in desolation because there's a deepening that takes place. And, and no amount of changing it up is going to give you the consolation you want. God just wants you to be still and know that he is God. See, we tend to think in desolation that God's abandoned us. God will never leave you nor forsake you. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. He ain't going anywhere. He's not going to unfriend you. He's not going to dish you. He's not going to not return your call or text. He is with you 100% of the time. He will ride and die with you. So just sit there and be honest. That's where prayer becomes real, by the way. Prayer is not a time to be perfect. Prayer is a time to be honest. God, I'll be honest with you. I'm reading Ezekiel right now, and I don't know what the heck you're talking about. 
I know you say it's inspired, but I don't even like it. I'm so bored reading Ezekiel. By the way, you've thought that. And he's already omniscient, which means he already knows. So why are you trying to flower it up? How about just be honest? God, I got issues, man. I got anger issues. I made a comment last night in the green room that was so reeked of pride. I'm like, why would you say that? You didn't need to say that. So I just go, God, I'm just a mess. I need you in my life. Golly, what is that? What is that? That's the beauty. That's the beauty of doing life with God. And it might be that God wants you to just sit in desolation and enjoy him. Well, I, I think, fellas, we got to trust our theology. Right? Psalm 13 says this, and, and I'll try to work to a close. I'm sorry if I'm a little long. It says, how long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O Lord, will I have sorrow in my heart? How long, O Lord, will my enemy be exalted over me? God, answer me, O God, or I will sleep the sleep of death. Have you ever prayed like that? Like, God, how long is this going to happen? If you don't show up, I think I'm going to die. Like, this sucks. This is awful. If you haven't prayed like that, guys, can I encourage you to pray like that? Some of you guys, maybe these guys, or maybe you know a guy like this. Have you ever met a guy who prays, and when he prays, it's like it's not even him talking. Father in heaven, thine glory renown, we thank thee for thy blessings. Now, that's fine if that's how he always talks. But if that's your prayer language, like you, you talk like a normal dude, and then when you go to pray, you, you pray like that. Man, we need to be real with God. How long, oh God? That psalm, though, makes a turn. He says, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. That's prayer becoming real. God, I'm, I'm struggling. This is what's going on, but I trust you. Yeah, this sucks. And God, by the way, the circumstances in Psalm 13 don't change. We don't know. Nothing got alleviated. Nothing changed. But he just goes, ah. But I'll trust you. And it doesn't change the circumstance. That's important. God's love is not demonstrated by changing of circumstance. If that's the case, he's a genie. Here comes God, three wishes, take this away, take that away, take that away. Yay, God. No, that's not the way it works. It's, it's God showing up even in your desolation and being with you. All right. Um, another thing to think about, by the way, is uh, if we're going to discipline ourselves spiritually and we're going to use that athletic metaphor, uh, if you train physically once a week, do you think you will become fit? You will not become fit. You, you will become more fit than if you never trained. So, I mean, that, like an F. Uh, is, is bad. A D is better. Um, but, but if you trained more than once a week, do you think you would actually get more fit? Yeah. So spiritually, if you just go to church, are, are you going to grow spiritually? No, not really. So what if we began to think about how to implement these things into our life? All right. I want to close with, with one resource I want to give you. Uh, it's called a prayer of intention. Here's what I want you to think about. What, what, what could your mornings look like in terms of spiritual training? What could your lunch hours look like in terms of spiritual training? What could your commute look like in terms of spiritual training? What could a Friday night Sabbath look like in terms of spiritual training? What could um, the couple, you know, 30 minutes or so before you go to bed look like? What could um, when the kids nap look like? What could Fill in the blank look like in terms of spiritual training. Could you infuse your life, just sprinkle in, like, like seasoning in a good meal, could you just sprinkle in some of these spiritual practices into your life? And, and would that maybe invite something different in your spiritual life out of you? Not from you, for you. Let me give you a resource. It's called the prayer of intention. Just something to think about 
when the alarm goes off and your feet hit the floor. One thing I know, we have all different lives, but one thing I know, there is a point in time in a day where you wake up and your feet hit the floor, okay? Whether it's like, oh, dark 30, whether it's 9 a.m., I don't care. When your feet hit the floor, could you pray a prayer something like this? It starts first with presenting yourself to God based on Romans 12.1. And it simply says this, Lord, I'm here. Um, thank you for waking me up. I present myself to you. Second, um, a daily abiding in Christ based on John 15. This idea of, Lord, I'm here. I present myself to you. And could I just abide in you today? Could I be about you today? Could I rest in you today? Third, a denouncing of self. Because, by the way, the self continues to want to be a big deal. And this is based on Philippians 3. And this is simply where you'd say, Lord, if there's anything in me that's about me, I just want to make it about you. So whatever things were gained to me, I consider lost for the sake of Christ. So, Lord, I present myself to you. I want to abide in you. And I want to be about you today. And then to uh, fourth, keep a short account. Lord, if there's anything in me, search me, oh God, know my heart. If there's anything in me, uh, show me. And I want to I own it. I want to live in the light with you. I want to walk in light as you're in the light. So if there's anything, whether it's now or at the four-way stop or at the lunch hour or at the water cooler at work or wherever, if there's anything that's not like you, bring it to mind. I will confess it. I want to, be, I want to keep a short account with you. And then finally, fifth, to enjoy this day with God based on the easy yoke of Matthew 11. And it's a simple prayer like, Lord, could I experience the joy of life with God today? Now, that, that's going to take you about 15 seconds. But what it does is set your intention that day. I'm going to walk with Jesus today. And it might be a, a gift you give yourself. I'll close with Galatians 5. It says, the fruit of the Spirit is, because remember, we're talking about living in the Spirit and walking by the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that invites us into the richness of life with God through Christ. So thank you for the gospel, the work of Jesus in our life. And Lord, we uh, are a hot mess often. And yet you love us and we are so thankful for that. And so could we be invited into a more rich and robust experience of life with God as we learn how to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness, knowing the return on the investment is both this life and the life to come. And as we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit for your glory and our good. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.